Good afternoon. Thanks for coming to Grand Rounds. Uh, my name is Brent Berwin, and it's a pleasure to introduce our speaker today, Steve Firing, friend and colleague from the Microbiology and Immunology Department. Uh, Steve came to us uh, uh, after his graduate work at Stanford with the Herzenberg Lab. We're really instrumental in getting flow cytometry off the ground, and, and Steve was instrumental in that as well. Uh, there he was studying uh, T cells uh, in, in conjunction with the flow cytometry, really in the early days of some of those studies. Uh, he went on to do a postdoc with Mark Gurdine at the Hutch Cancer Center. Uh, and really there, he started a project that he brought with him here, studying uh, uh, chromatin structure uh, and gene regulation, and particularly at the beta globin locus. And then after coming here in, in 97, he, he did uh, uh, studies on that for a while, and then did one of those really adventurous things that uh, um, uh, both uh, you know, brave and were envious of, is he, he switched what he was working on, and so he's taken on uh, working on tumor systems now, just even in the past few years. He's made a really nice transition into that. Um, he's now a full professor in both microbiology, immunology, and uh, genetics. And he's now working on novel immunotherapies for cancer. And he turned out a, a really nice paper, had a series of work, but a really nice paper in 2015 in Nature Nanotechnology. Um, and today he's going to tell us about uh, uh, in situ tumor vaccination with viral like nanoparticles. Treat locally, respond globally. That's the title of his talk. And I think I have a formal announcement. Uh, Steve does not have any financial interests. I feel like that's almost a joke. Um, yeah. uh, he reports that he does not intend to discuss off label or investigational use of a product or device. Um, and he attests attests that he is not receiving direct payments from a commercial entity with respect to his activity, which feels uh, very appropriate on a voting sort of day. So, uh, Steve, please. Thank you, Brent, for that lovely, 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 lovely introduction. Am I audible? Great. So I thought that... Uh, in case the science was a little weak, I would distract you with appearances, and I wore a tie. <laughs> Chuck Weir saw me in a tie and immediately wanted to shake my hand and said, can I vote for you in the primary? <laughs> so, all right, so basically everything is in the title. We'll talk about in situ tumor vaccination, what that is. It's a, it's a concept of a way to develop cancer immunotherapy. We'll talk about the viral-like particles. And the important thing about the in situ vaccination is the idea of directly treating a visible tumor in a manner that will get systemic anti-tumor immune responses. So that's the goal. And as Brent reported, I unfortunately have nothing interesting to disclose. <laughs> okay, so the important concepts. Cancer is recognized by the immune system. After roughly a 100-year argument, it's pretty well accepted and a very important concept. So if it's recognized by the immune system, why do we get cancer? Because the tumor develops a local 
immunosuppressive environment. Can, uh, immunology is all about suppression and stimulation. The tumor manipulates an environment that protects it from the immune system. So any immunotherapy, if it's going to have success in one way or another, has to overcome the local immunosuppression. So in situ vaccination, it's actually a rather simple concept and a very old concept. The idea is to manipulate the tumor that's recognized in a manner that will stimulate a local immune response against that tumor with the goal of generating a systemic immune response that would fight metastatic disease. Every vaccine has two components. Antigen, which is what you're trying to train the immune system to recognize, and adjuvant, which essentially wakes up the immune system and says, pay attention to this. It's hard to know what are the right antigens in a tumor. So traditionally, people have mainly worked on what are called tumor antigens. And these are normal proteins that are expressed at the wrong level, in the wrong tissue type, at the wrong time during development, something that makes them abnormal enough so the immune system can potentially respond against them. Over the last five or so years, there's been a lot of work in looking for what are called neoantigens. Neoantigens are mutant proteins. So cancers have very unstable genomes and they generate lots of mutations, most of which have nothing to do with making the uh, cancer what it is. They're not tumorigenic, but they just are bystander mutations, but they can be immunogenic. So people are recognizing that these are actually quite important. The problem with that is they're unique. Every tumor, every patient has unique neoantigens. So our view is that we want to use both, right? And the, the nice thing about the idea of in situ vaccination, using the tumor as the antigen source, is that all the antigens are there, whether they're tumor antigens, whether they're neoantigens, everything possibly recognizable by the immune system is in that tumor. And if it's not in that tumor, you're not interested in it. The other point is, Recognition of an antigen is done in the context, at least for T cells, of presentation by an HLA molecule. So I'm not going to get into that, but the idea is that the antigen has to match the HLA. Once again, in a situation such as we're trying to push, which is use the tumor as the antigen, the HLA is what it is. You don't need to know what it is, and it doesn't matter because you're not going to change it. So everything is already in the tumor as the antigen source. And then the question becomes, what is the adjuvant? Add the adjuvant, combine it with something that will generate an immunogenic tumor cell death, which is also immunogenic, and see if it can become systemic. And I thank William Coley, who over 100 years ago was basically doing this by putting various bacterial concoctions into patients' tumors. So just a few ideas, because I think if you catch these ideas, then you basically understand what the whole thing is about. 
manipulate the known tumor, get a local response, and use that to get a systemic response. The immune system is inherently systemic. There's a lot of mechanism involved. There's a lot of homing receptors. There's a lot of cytokines. There's lots of things involved with that. But the reality is it's inherently systemic. Recognition of a situation in one part of the body has a tendency to enable recognition and action in other parts of the body. And I think it's very important to note that we don't see this as particularly something to be done by itself, but as something that could be integrated with other immunotherapies, other uh, current standards of care. So this kind of goes through the basic ideas. Here's your tumor. Put in an adjuvant. Something that will cause cell death is also useful. If it's the right type of cell death. These change the tumor microenvironment. The goal is they're going to activate antigen-presenting cells that may be already in the tumor, but not effectively presenting antigen. Get them to take the antigen, go to the lymph node. In the lymph node, they present the antigen to naive T cells. The T cells get activated. They leave. They become effector T cells. They circulate. They find and attack other tumors. It's like introductory T cell immunology. It's much more complicated, I'm sure. There's lots of aspects to it. But basically, that's what we're trying to do. Hopefully, if things go well, it'll also form memory T cells which is what everybody in the immunotherapy um, community would like to be able to develop. What are the advantages of it? Well, one advantage is that it's inherently safer because you can localize the treatment. You can have high concentrations of something in the tumor that systemically might be a problem, but systemically the concentrations are quite low. It's very controllable because you're able to look right at that tumor and tell what's going on. Take samples, analyze it. You can do multiple doses. You can monitor the response. One idea that I'm uh, very excited about is the idea that this could be done between the time of diagnosis and the time of surgery to try to stimulate a systemic immune response. And then, just as it was normally scheduled, the surgeon comes in, takes the tumor out. But the immune response has already begun. So everybody, I think, probably, not everybody, but most of us have heard about checkpoint blockade antibodies. And to me, the simple way of looking at checkpoint blockade antibodies is they take the breaks off of T cells all through the system. The T cells are unleashed. The problem with checkpoint antibodies, I think they're great, but they're not antigen-specific, right? They take the breaks off all the T cells, regardless of what antigen they see. Side effects begin to develop. Some of them get kind of severe. So this would be something that I think could work well with that because in situ vaccination has antigen specificity. So you're stimulating specifically T cells that would be specific for the tumor. And then the checkpoint blockade would have more to work with, potentially. This is something we're working on. OK, I'm going to be talking to you today about a nanoparticle. And I always think this is good to sort of orient um, where you are in the size scale. So I think this is always the way I remember is that roughly 10 nanometers is a antibody molecule. Everybody's got a 
not an image of what an antibody molecule looks like, how big it is, right? You basically know how it's made, what it looks like. So that's 10 nanometers. 100 nanometers in diameter is well, a little bit on the high side of the average virus, right? So this is, this is the size range we're talking about. It's a unique size range because it's got enough size to fit a lot of potential information, a lot of potential um, parts to it, but it's small enough so it gets ingested by the cells. Cells will phagocytose these size particles. So there's a lot of excitement around it. So the story I'll tell you about is about a viral-like particle. Viral-like particle is basically the terminology for something that's got the code of a virus, but it's not infectious. Many of the vaccines that we use today use a viral-like particle as the antigen source, including the, uh, the HPV vaccine that's used to try to prevent uh, HPV, va uh, HPV infection and associated uh, cervical cancer. Many flu vaccines, that's the actual antigen. It's a viral-like particle. The difference here is that this is not to try to get a response against the cognate virus, not to protect you from flu. It just turns out that this particle, cowpea mosaic virus, a plant virus, is highly immunogenic. It's very stimulatory. We don't know much about the pathway, but as you'll see, it's very stimulatory. So it's a self-assembled protein coat of this plant virus. There's nothing in it that would be recognized as an adjuvant at this point. There's no nucleic acids. There's no LPS. It's just the proteins of the coat of the virus. As you'll see, it's very immunostimulatory. And just like pretty much every other nanoparticle, you can use it as a platform. You can put things on the inside. It's hollow. You can attach things to the outside. It could carry drugs. It could carry antigens. It could have targeting with a surface antibody. There's lots of things that could be done. I'm not going to talk about any of that. All I'm talking about is the basic empty cowpea mosaic virus particle. And the data you'll see has been published. It recently came out in Nature Nanotech. Okay, so here's a pretty picture that our, our uh, collaborator, Nicole Steinmetz, I'm sorry, I forgot to mention Nicole on the first slide, Nicole and Amy Wen, at Case Western are the people who made these particles. She's the nanoparticle engineer. Um, so what about what's what what you know what are the practical aspects of this? It's very efficient. You know you can, you infect leaves and you roughly get back a, a, a one to one thousand mass of leaf as purified biochemically purified particles. They're very clean. There's no LPS. There are companies that will make these GMP and they make these for um, vaccines. They're very stable. Water, PBS, doesn't matter. Keep them sterile, and they're fine for a number of months. So it's something that could potentially be conveniently used in the clinic. <coughs> so first question, does it mediate local or systemic control? So this is sort of the key slide in the whole deck as far as data goes. And once we get through this, if you're a little sleepy or whatnot, It'll be all right. You'll get the idea. You got the idea, okay? So the question is, if you put this into a tumor, does it affect the tumor locally? And then do you get a systemic immune response? So 
This is the experiment. We grow a B16 melanoma on the flank of a mouse. We inject it with 100 micrograms of ECPMV. The control is injected with PBS. And then you can track the growth curve. In this experiment, we tried injecting it again. Um, you see that pretty much immediately it stops growing. This is what it looks like. So this is a, a tumor that was treated with PBS and three days Previously, this tumor was treated with ECPMV, and you can see it's really very different, and it's got a necrotic center. They don't all get necrotic centers, but we see it. And what that says to me, and we don't have a lot of data to show it, is that there's cell death going on in there. This is the Kaplan-Meier, so the untreated, they all die as a group, and the treated, the tumors basically stop, most of them tend to disappear, and then roughly half of them come back. So that's pretty effective. I put a lot of things into B16 tumors, and this is really potent. Amanda nods her head. She's done that, too. Okay, so one question we had is, all right, we got, th we got these mice. They rejected the tumor. Will they be able to reject a rechallenge? That's going to tell us if they have systemic immune response. So we did the experiment. This is what it looks like. This was the injection. We tried a section injection. The tumors disappeared. We waited a while. So this is definitely going to be in, in classic immunology. People would say that the effector T cells are gone. If we get an effect, this is memory T cells. And we got a beautiful effect. So three quarters of the mice, they never get the tumor. They reject it. One quarter, it grows, grows a lot slower. So we're clearly getting a nice systemic immune response. Okay, so now I'm going to talk for a section about different models, because what we'll show you is that it, it, it works on different tumors. It works on different tumor locations. It works on different strains of mice. It's not somehow unique. So this is a model that we'll talk a lot about, because we have most of our mechanism on this model. So I'll take a minute to explain it. B16 is injected into the tail vein where it goes to the lungs and sets up tumors. Three days after that, after that injection, the tumors are already established, and we inhaled 100 micrograms into the lungs of the mice. Did that three times. And then on day 21, the lungs are harvested, and the tumors are counted. And this is the basic result, counting tumors. So the treatment definitely knocked down the numbers of tumors that we were able to establish, didn't cure the mice. So we asked the same question in, in a different way about systemic immunity. And we did the experiment on, on day three after the IV injection, we treated. And on that same day, we challenged on the flank. So the idea is that if the treatment in the lungs is going to develop systemic immunity, it may retard the growth of the flank tumor. And it does. It's not an awesome uh, impact, but it's clearly statistically significant. It definitely tells us that this is happening. So the presence of the tumor and the treatment in the lungs enabled some systemic response. Okay, so this is a very interesting model, in my opinion. 
Um, it's the 4T1 model, and the reason why I really like it is because you take this breast tumor, it grows in a biopsy mouse, so now we're out of a black six mouse, and once again I said strain doesn't seem to matter. And you, you grow it in the, uh, in the breast, and then if you remove it sometime after day 15, it will have already spontaneously metastasized to the lungs. So I like that. It's a genuine, spontaneous, metastatic model. So we wanted to ask whether we could do that. We, we grew the tumors, removed them, and a week later, we inhaled ECPMV into the lungs intratracheally. Then we tracked the progression. And so this is showing because the tumor expresses luciferase, you could see on day 14 that the ones that had PVS are showing up with tumors. On day 22 post-surgery, there are even more, and we're really not seeing anything yet. And here's the Kaplan-Meier. So that one treatment had a very pronounced effect. Another uh, flank tumor model, this is CT26, a colon cancer tumor. Once again, it's in a, a biopsy mouse. We injected it. It pretty much stopped growing. We didn't really follow up much, but we can certainly say it works. This is one of our favorite models, and it's one of Brent's favorite models, too. This is uh, ID8 um, VEGF beta defense in 29, which is a very aggressive ovarian cancer cell line. You inject it into the perineum of the mouse. It spreads out, forms hundreds of tiny tumors, and you recognize the end stage because they start to get ascites. So it's a serous ovarian cancer model, and it's really, really hard to affect with immunotherapy. So this is the strategy injecting particles into the perineum, day three, day 10, day 17, and then track it. This is the Kaplan-Meier. And as you can see, it was really potent. I've done lots of experiments and published a number of them in which you can get a nice bump on that Kaplan-Meier. But this is by far the most potent effect we've seen. I thought that maybe these were cured. It turned out that they weren't. All of these mice eventually died of ovarian cancer, but it was out here around day 120 when the last ones were dying. So it's very potent. Okay, so we talked about the fact that it's systemic and, it's, and, uh, and, and what we want to know as well, what do we know about the mechanisms? And I, I wish I had a lot more to tell you, but we know something. So the first thing is, is it directly tumorcidal? So we grew these cell lines in culture, we put it on them, and as you can see, the growth curves overlay, right? They don't care. It's not directly super tumorcidal to the tumor cells, but we're pretty sure there is some tumorcidal activity going on, and we think it's mediated by the immune system. We don't really know that much about it at this point. Okay, is it the immune system? So we did the... Um, as I say, round up the usual suspects for tumor immunologists. IL-12, IL-12 knockout mouse. This is the lung model, inhalation into the lung from IV-injected B16. Doesn't work. Does it need interferon gamma? Yep, needs interferon gamma, needs IL-12. How about if you do it in a mouse that lacks B cells, T cells, and NK cells? It doesn't work. 
So it's clearly right in the center of what most people expect to see in a T-cell mediated uh, anti-tumor response. But we also looked at something else, and you'll see why we did. We, we depleted neutrophils using a Li6G depleting antibody. And once again, it didn't work. That's particularly interesting because neutrophils are usually not one of the usual suspects. That's not what people think about when they think about tumor immunotherapy. So let's start looking into that. All right, so the first question is, how about cytokines? So we did a variety of cytokine studies. I'll show you one further on. We looked at the Luminex panel, thanks to, to Jackie and Dart Lab. We can look at 34 um, cytokines in one experiment. And these are the ones that changed. IL-1 beta had a pretty good change. The rest of them, they're all, they're all relatively modest. Now, I've done this experiment a lot. You could put something that's a known adjuvant, let's say LPS, right, on these macrophages, and they'll go through the roof, right? You'll probably easily get tenfold on a lot of these things. So something's happening, but boy, I'm not that impressed by it, actually. Dendritic cells, it's, it's pretty similar. Not that much going on. Okay, so now we're going to kind of dig into it. So this is the lung of a mouse which does not have cancer. CD11B is a marker for various types of myeloid cells. And also, it turns out that on a neutrophil, CD11B is an activation marker. Li6G is a unique neutrophil marker. So you look at a normal mouse, and there's a bunch of cells down in this corner from this, and this is about 75 or 80 percent of them are what people would call alveolar macrophages, and there's some lymphocytes also in there. And now you have the neutrophils. So there's a lot of neutrophils in the lung. 18 hours after inhalation of ECPMV, there's a whole new population here. CD11B high, Li6G high, these are activated neutrophils. These are some bar graphs. All we are looking at here are the white blood cells. So none of the other lung cells were showing up on this plot. We're just looking at the white blood cells. So that's pretty interesting. So we looked at them a little bit more carefully in a, in a normal mouse lung. And we saw that you take these quiescent neutrophils and they're very high for class two. Class two is the canonical marker for an antigen-presenting cell. If you're going to claim this is an antigen-presenting cell, it's got to express class two. That's pretty much how it goes. They are very high for class two. I've looked at a lot of these plots. These guys are way up there. To present antigen effectively, you need co-stimulation. Second signal saying, yes, in fact, there is an immune response going on. So when you see this antigen, you should wake up and get excited. Co-stimulation in the quiescent neutrophils is way down. So putting these together, you would say, you know, these are really tolerogenic cells. They're quiet. The lung is quiet. We don't want a whole lot of activity. After they've gone through this process, the first thing we know, if we're looking at a fluorescently labeled viral-like nanoparticle is these guys took them up a lot, right? So these activated neutrophils took up these particles, whereas if we look at the quiescent neutrophils, they haven't, right? Because they're not fluorescent. <coughs> Class two is still high. It came down a bit, 
But now look at CD86. It's way up. So although we haven't done the experiments to prove that these are now good antigen-presenting cells, they sure have the markings of what we think would be a good antigen-presenting cell. Okay, this is looking at the B16 lung 14 days after it was IV injected. So remember, these are nothing but white blood cells. The tumors are real small, barely visible. But we see huge differences if you go back and you look at what the quiescent lung looks like. These are basically the only two groups you see on that plot. Here now, we see these three other groups. These groups, this group is a myeloid-derived uh, suppressive cell, right? So these are one of the type cells that tumors recruit. And these are the monocytic variety. These are the granulocytic variety. These are suppressive white blood cells that are protecting the tumor from the immune response and probably helping it with other things like blood vessel development. We see a small group of cells out here. And after searching around in the literature, it turns out that these have been recognized as tumor-infiltrating neutrophils, very high for Li6G, very high for CD11B, small group. 18 hours after inhalation, what does that lung look like? Well, there's some obvious changes. The activated neutrophils of the sort that I showed you previously have now gone from being barely a population to 10% of the white blood cells. The tumor-infiltrated neutrophils have gone up to 11%. So combined, now we have 20% of the white blood cells are these activated neutrophils. We've lost a lot of the quiescent neutrophils. We're down to like 3% as before we had 10%. There's a reduction in these. It's not on here. It goes from about, I think it's 31%. Here it is, 31% here. Now, as a proportion, uh, they're down to 23%. The granulocytic um, myeloid-derived suppressor cells didn't change. So we see a very clear difference. Okay, Mark. For those of us who are immunologists, <coughs> are these neutrophils just white blood cells that include lymphocytes, or are the? I mean, usually I use... No, I they're not lymphocytes. Okay, so they're polymorphic neutrophils. Yeah, basically, fills, basically. Fills or yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. And I, I don't know. I don't know if they're differentiated that well. Well, what we're saying is that the CD45 cells, which is the gate, so we get rid of everybody on these graphs that's not a white blood cell. If they don't have CD45. They're not a white blood cell. So now we can look at the different subpopulations of white blood cells without looking at anybody else in the lungs. So, so where are the lymphocytes on that? They're down here. They're down here. They're negative for Li6G and they're negative for CD11B. So we have, there's a whole variety of, of other colors in there, but this is, this is where the interest was. Does that answer? Yeah. Okay, so let's look at these populations a little bit more carefully. So this is in the tumor-bearing lung, and we're going to look at these three populations, the activated neutrophils, the alveolar max, and the monocytic MDSCs, and the tumor-infiltrating neutrophils. And our first question is, who took up the particles? So... This is tumor-infiltrating neutrophils. The further you are that way, the more particles you took up. This is activated neutrophils. And then the MDSCs and the alveolar max are pretty quiet. So once again, the particles are being taken up by these neutrophils. <coughs> Class two, the, um, the tumor-infiltrating neutrophils are high. The, uh, the activated neutrophils are, are high, but not quite as high. And CD86, 
Once again, the tumor infiltrating neutrophils are quite high. The activated neutrophils are getting higher. I think they're going to get higher if we were to wait. And the other, other cells are, also have some CD86, mainly the alveolar max. What about the chemokines and cytokines? So once again, we look through the whole panel. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that change a modest amount. It's statistically significant. I don't know what's biologically significant. I think that um, IL-15 may be involved, and that's something that we want to look into. It seems like that's having the strongest effect of anything. Doesn't tell us all that much. So what are the other cells and what's going on? So 18 hours after inhalation, we see an increase in NK1.1 cells, either by as a percent or as a number. CD8 T cells, no change. CD4 T cells, no change. So this is 18 hours. I'm not surprised there's no change on T cells. But that's the data. Okay, so this is a piece of data that uh, Miri just generated, and that was this weekend. And it's, it's our first sort of real insight into signaling. So we tried the experiment on a mouse that is a knockout for the MIDI-88 molecule. So MIDI-88 is an important signaling molecule that helps recognize lots of pathogens. Most of the toll-like receptors, if you're familiar with them, signal through MIDI-88. And also um, IL-1 receptor signals through MIDI-88. So we treated, we established B16s on the flank, and these, these MIDI-88s are in the, the B6 background, so it's, uh, it's accepted. The tumors grow, MIRI um, injected, PBS. Wild-type mice with CPMV or knockouts with CPMV. So this green line is the wild-type mice that got treated. As we showed you before, they immediately stopped growing, and over the course of a few days, they really seemed to disappear. This is a wild-type mouse that was not treated, and this is a MIDI-88 that was not treated. So clearly, MIDI-88 is required. So that's like a, a real recent piece of data. And so that's basically the end of the data to go through things on uh, what we think are the mechanisms of what's going on and what we'd like to prove. It does seem like, at least in the lungs, CPMV is preferentially ingested by neutrophils, Li6G positive cells. We think, haven't proven, that they become good antigen presenters. They're going to activate tumor-specific T cells. We know that tumor-specific T cells are required because it doesn't work in an NSG mouse. Well, okay, you could argue that it's B cells or NK cells, and maybe you're right, but I'm putting my bet on T cells. And then we get local and systemic effects, which I think are also T cell mediated. It has to yet be proven. In the flank, we, what we think is happening is that there's neutrophils, they ingest the CPMV, and they activate. And immunologists have been bored by neutrophils for at least throughout my career. And one of the reasons is because they, they act very dumb. You activate a neutrophil, and generally it just explodes, killing everybody in the vicinity, which could be great. In fact, you, you probably are better off to not have T cells than you are to not have neutrophils if you're going to survive. <laughs> 
But it's never been something that immunologists have thought was particularly interesting because they don't have that antigen specificity. But I think that that activity, right, is releasing toxic compounds of various sorts. They're killing cells, including tumor cells. They're getting an immunogenic cell death. And you're really kicking off the response. But we haven't proven that. I think in this situation, these activated neutrophils are, are acting as the adjuvant, and they're also presenting the, they're generating a lot more antigens. So where do we want to go now? Obviously, we're interested in mechanisms. If it's not neutrophils, that's kind of interesting because tumor immunologists have generally ignored them. Recognition pathways. So we see it needs MyD88. Does it require a, uh, a three-dimensional structure? I think that's a really interesting question. Here we have this three-dimensional structure of uh, a viral-like protein, a viral-like capsid, it's being aggressively recognized by the immune system through a recognition pathway that is not yet known. Now, if you just think about it, boy, it sure makes a lot of sense that the immune system would have evolved a way of recognizing viral structures. But nobody's seen it yet. So possibly we, we now have a handle on it. Does it require that 3D structure? Um, we're, we're working on an experiment to test its synergy with checkpoint blockade antibodies. Will it support greater efficacy, systemic efficacy, in a mouse that's being treated with checkpoint blockade antibodies? So I think that's really important because I think that gets right into questions in the clinic. Can you enable a better systemic effect with less checkpoint antibodies? They are, at some times, for many patients, limited by toxicity. Because as we were saying, they just take the brakes off. I'm working with Jack Hoops, and we have some internal funding, thanks to Prouty and Monk Pfeffercorn, to treat dogs that have spontaneous oral melanoma. And uh, this, we think, is going to give us a lot of insight into how to do this in a large animal and, and um, how to make it effective and potentially um, help support the last goal, which is clinical testing in patients. So the acknowledgments, before I finish the acknowledgments, I want to point out for those of you who need the activity code, there it is. Um, the people in my lab who've all uh, contributed extensively to this, particularly Pat and Miri, our collaborators at Case, Nicole Steinmetz in her lab, and particularly Amy Wen. We've gotten a considerable amount of funding that's gotten us this far, the Dartmouth Center of Cancer Nanotechnology Excellence, the Immunology Training Grant that supported Pat, the Immunology COBRI, Prouty Funding, Dart Lab, Immune Monitoring and Flow Cytometry, the Transgenic Shared Resource, and I'm very happy to answer any questions. Chuck, Very you can vote for me. Uh, I will. Thank you. <laughs> Early and many times. Uh, the question is, um, with the uh, uh, neutrophils, tumor cells, how many of these are cells that are um, activated locally versus those that trafficking? Is there any way from your flow data you can 
That's a very rapid response at 18 hours. Yeah, and it, so all we can tell from the numbers is that there's both happening in the lungs, right? Because we're, we're seeing a reduction in quiescent cells, so we're assuming that those are turning activated. But then overall, we see a lot more neutrophils than were ever in there previously. So I think they're also being recruited out of the blood. Did you see IL-8 going up at this time? We did not. No. We did not. It's in the panel. I believe it's in the panel. Yeah, I mean, basically, if I didn't show it, it's not, in, it, it's not going up. It's in the panel. Yeah. I mean, the whole, one, of my, one of my big questions is, like, why is there just so little cytokine response? Because it really isn't a lot. So for your systemic model, you uh, tried uh, vaccinating them through aspiration. Have you tried the uh, reverse of vaccinating them in the flank and then seeing one might go away? No. Would you get a better immune response that way? Um, I, I really don't know, and I think it's a very good experiment to do, and we have not done that. So yes, that's a very good experiment to do, and we've not done it. I would like to do it in the, um, the spontaneous metastatic model. Instead of surgically removing the tumor, treat it, and then see what happens with the lung meds. I think that would be a very nice model to do it. Gilbert? Um, thank you so much for your talk. You mentioned in the beginning that these vital lacrimal particles, you can add molecules to them. Right now, you're not adding any molecules to them, right? So do you imagine if you take a tumor lysate and perhaps try to conjugate it to these molecules that you get even a better response without any sort of remission in the future? My guess on that question is no, because I think that we got plenty of antigen in the tumor. So uh, I don't think that we're antigen limited in that situation. I think other things that might be quite interesting would be um, particular cytokines that come in that way, possibly drugs that would cause um, immunogenic cell death or drugs that would support an immune response, possibly co-inject with something like um, PD-1 or CTLA-4 blocking antibodies. But I don't think they're short of antigen, but that's my guess. I never did the experiment. Yeah. Steve, you know, in the mice that fell the tumor, is it due to the fact that neutrophils are now completely depleted at that point? I haven't even occurred to me because my naive, because I am an immunologist, <laughs> understanding of neutrophils is they're just getting cranked out every day, like in huge numbers. Now, Ken may be able to, like, Help, help me on that. Is, that. is that a correct impression that more than any other cell, you're cranking out neutrophils as far as white blood cells? And they don't live very long. But they may need that continuous stimulus from your particles. So. Yes, there's a lot of those questions that I really have no clue on yet. And so uh, <coughs> hopefully soon, I'll be, I'll be less ignorant about neutrophils. <laughs> Ken. Is there any correlation with the number of neutrophils in the response? I can't say that, because the only data we have is in the lungs. 
And so we haven't really manipulated it. The, the correlation is not numbers. The correlation would be when we took out the neutrophils and we knocked them down 99%, right? So we checked it, at least in peripheral blood, we lost the effect. So whether a 30% knockdown or a 70% knockdown would have hurt that response, I don't know. The and you know, that might be a great thing to carry in on the particles is, is GCSF or whatever is going to really strongly recruit neutrophils. That, that's an excellent idea, I think. <laughs>